0: recording. So
1: welcome everybody to week, uh, which week are we up to? It's week five or six? Week five, thank you. In the unit ARP 300, Researching Democracy. Today we're moving on to the next section, talking about uh, recent thinking, more recent thinking about
0: democracy, recent theories or models, of
1: updated traditions, about how to understand democracy. And this week procedural democracy is the key one for this, this um, third section part of the unit. The next week and the week after are compared to this one. And procedural democracy is probably what most of you expected this unit to be about. It's the mainstream idea of what democracy is. So I'll, I'll go through the key issues in the introduction. Then I'll look at the procedural model itself. And then I'll reflect on citizenship within the procedural model. Because there are those who argue that this is not really a model about democracy. This is uh, a theory of leadership. It's about comp- competition between elites to, pr- to achieve um, the best uh, leaders, or the least bad group of leaders and the citizens actually aren't terribly important in this model. So that's why we go through the criticisms uh, by
0: asking about citizenship.
1: So procedural democracy is conventional wisdom. It's the way most people understand the current political system in industrially advanced countries. It combines liberalism and democracy despite the tensions I hope you're familiar with, the tensions between the rights of individuals and the responsibilities of collectives. Whether that collective is a cooperative of workers, a uh, municipality or a Soviet or a commune, of uh, local residents, or it's the entire nation. Whatever the group, whatever the collective, there's tension, whatever the demos, there's tension with the the rights of individuals. Uh, This procedural democracy is also known as protective democracy, and the bottom left there, David Held, who, uh, Uh, died in 2012, I believe it was. So this third edition is the final form. Protective democracy means that voting protects individuals from the state and from bad government. If the government becomes too objectionable, we can choose the government in waiting. The alternative opposition to the government as the new government. Are there supposed to be slides showing? Yes. Aren't they showing? Oops. Sorry about that. Yes. Can you see the slides now? Yep. Yes, oh, sorry about that. Um, so that's the the first page introduction, procedural model citizenship and then this is the second
0: slide we're talking about protective
1: democracy, where voting protects individuals, the the right to vote means that we have a right to protect ourselves from bad government Um, Richard Rorty And that's David Held on the bottom left there. Uh, He talks about protective democracy. The upper left, Richard Rorty, one of the uh, further reading authors, of uh, an American philosopher, he talks about liberal minimalism where these procedures for choosing leaders are cool, distant procedures. And it uh, means that Citizens are much more passive. Uh, All you have to do is turn up and vote. It doesn't really matter if you do or don't know who the candidates are, what they stand for. Uh, You just choose one one versus the other, one group rather than others. And this distance and coolness of, of public decisions and choices means that in civil society we can tolerate much more diversity. Many religions, many languages, many ethnicities, uh, and more recently, diverse uh, uh, sexual orientations. Gay marriage is now uh, part of a multicultural civil society. Uh, And this, I argue, is is a pretty serious strength of uh, procedural democracy or liberal minimalism. Finally, uh, C.B. McPherson, who's the thin, uh, gaunt figure on the right, uh, David Held's teacher, and one of the founders of the Oxford School of Political Philosophy through uh, studying history do philosophy by studying political history. Uh, he talked about equilibrium democracy. He takes up Weber's ideas about politics as a market of ideas. And we look at that a little in a minute. And argues that these procedures for choosing leaders allows uh, voters' demands for for fixing up problems to match the supply. So political entrepreneurs come up with new policies and the the voters either buy or don't buy these policies. And these procedures allow uh, an equilibrium in the electoral market. So he takes up this metaphor of the market, which I also spell out a bit later. In the top right is um, Michael Sandel, professor of politics at Harvard. He's, uh, I warmly recommend you listen to his um, reef lectures on the BBC, you can find them online. Um, he, he's the one who talks about procedures, um, which takes up Schumpeter's contrasts, which I'll talk about in a minute, and um, we, 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 we can't agree on uh, a way of life or the common good because of our different uh, worldviews, our religions, our languages, our ideologies. We're also diverse and different, but we can all agree on the procedure for choosing leaders. Um, I, I find this idea of procedural democracy the most accurate term, that's why I've been using it. So the key issues, what is the procedural model? Who can be a citizen? How ought citizens rule? Who is the good citizen? What are the main sites for citizenship? We talk about local, national and international sites for citizenship. can finally, we end up with this critical question, can procedure overcome the problem of a democratic deficit, which builds on this metaphor of accountability. The leaders not, hold, not uh, being held to account, not taking responsibility for bad decisions, blaming others, uh, the democratic deficit is most difficult in the EU, but it's a, uh, poor accountability everywhere. There's a lot of um, uh, apathy about politicians, antagonism towards politicians, and just disengagement with this lack of accountability. So finally, we ask whether procedural democracy has the intellectual wherewithal the the concepts within it, can allow it to update itself? Can it keep up with contemporary problems? Can it transform itself? Feel
0: free to ask any questions if you
1: like. I can see the chat group or you can speak up if you like. So the procedural model of democracy protects individual citizens from oppression by government, in Locke's view of the social contract, or by other citizens in Hobbes's view of the social contract. This procedural model of democracy is based on an implied social contract, which uh, these days journalists do their best to to uphold, to hold politicians to their promises, make promises before the election and then after the election. You promised this, what's happened? Thirdly, democracy is not the highest value in our society. It's merely a procedure. It's, a, it's an instrument or a means of getting to something else. Other political ends are more important. So this procedure is a means of achieving prosperity or stability. And stability is very important. This is Benson's point from the early 1800s that uh, if you follow the rule of law and is orderly elections and procedures in Parliament, and for how pre- presidents uh, conduct themselves. Then a change of government is a is an everyday, uh, well not everyday, but um, every fourth year, every fifth year, we can have a new government. The old government leaves, accepts their fate, accepts the procedure. The new government comes in. Even when Donald Trump doesn't refuses to accept the procedure, uh, the rule of law prevails anyway. And we have a stable transition to a new government. By contrast, uh, dictators, authoritarian regimes, when uh, there's so much um, patron-client corruption around authoritarian regimes that when the top leader leaves, the house of cards collapses. And uh, the whole regime collapses and you you often have a a coup or another revolution. Um, For us, in stable democracies, procedural democracies, changes of government don't bring down the entire regime. Uh, And so this procedure leads to political stability over the longer term. Uh, The third one, leaders, is... Uh, emphasised in um, Robert Dahl and others, that procedures are about uh, determining the most competitive, the most fit, the best able leaders, the people who are going to make the decisions for us, our representatives. And that these procedures are actually a, a way of teaching people how to lead as they come up through the ranks and how to uh, govern the the country effectively. So the preconditions or the general characteristics of procedural democracy include a constitutional framework with a separation of powers and limits on government. One of the more interesting limits is uh, non-democratic or even uh, deeply elitist. And this is the uh, old uh, judges who are experts in the law, sees in judgment on whether government legislation follows the, complies to constitution. So governments can't do whatever they want. They've got these old men, some women, uh, experts in the law, experts in interpreting the constitution, who decide whether legislation is or is not constitutional. That's a pretty interesting non-democratic limit on democratic government. Uh, Secondly, procedural democracy relies on responsible and representative government according to the rule of law, which I think we're pretty familiar with. And thirdly, voting legitimates government (coughs) by ensuring that governments can be confident that the legislation they're passing, the reforms they're introducing, the decisions they're making are supported by popular consent there is a majority, and that people will obey these laws because even if they disagree, they accept that the majority has the power and the majority was produced according to fair procedures. And so everybody obeys the law because of, of popular consent by a majority that must be reasonable and is restricted by a constitution and the rule of law. So getting down to more detail, we've got three key authors here. Max Weber on the top left, um, anyone who's been studying sociology would recognise this photograph and figure. He's, he's known as one of the founders of sociology, along with Marx and Durkheim
2: um,
1: in the last decades of the 1800s. And his famous book about the Protestant work ethic uh, was 1902, I think, early 1900s. Um, He then had serious troubles with depression and didn't publish much until um, the end of the First World War. This photograph is taken from when he presented a speech at the University of of, uh, Munich Uh, The speech was titled, Politics as a Vocation. Uh, I warmly recommend you read this this lecture. It's much easier to understand than his other writing because he's speaking to people right in front of him. And he takes up his idea about bureaucracy in the modern world, that uh, these formal procedures is formal reasons and the rule of law and the rule of bureaucracy that everyone is equal before the law everyone is treated equally in bureaucratic procedures and insists that in politics passion matters but it shouldn't you shouldn't go into politics to advance your career it shouldn't be a profession Uh, comparable to an accountant or a a lawyer or a doctor. It should be a calling. It should be like becoming a priest. So politics is a vocation that involves the passions uh, and representation of the people. Very interesting lecture. Uh, He was in 1919. The... uh, First Reich, sorry, the Second Reich had fallen, uh, the king, the the, the um, Wilhelm, Wilhelm what was his title, the an emperor, um, had, his regime had, had collapsed and the Weimar Republic had replaced it, no longer based in Berlin, it was based in the city of Weimar. Um, and Weber was a strong advocate of liberalism, liberal democracy and the Weimar Republic, calling for these university students to seriously think about politics as a vocation. Joseph Schumpeter, uh, Austrian economist and political scientist, left Vienna uh, during the Nazi period and went to live in England I think he also spent time in America. Um, in 1942, he published a famous book that uh, we have some chapters from, you to, from for you to read. Um, he had a lot to say about capitalism, um, the creative just the entrepreneur's creative destruction of the past and previous methods in order to push forward. So he was very interested in Uh, leaders who who genuinely lead entrepreneurs and in both economics and in politics. Schumpeter is the key figure we talk about in a moment, but Robert Dahl, the bottom left there, uh, an American political scientist who emphasized parties and the role of parties within procedural democracy.
0: These, this revision
1: of democratic theory started by Weber uh, really uh, honed in on, with, under Schumpeter, who was an advocate of Weberian sociology, and then spelled out more fully by Dahl. It, the, the, the Second World War was the was, was crucial turning point because uh The first world War had brought universal conscription to fight in this mass war, mass transport, mass manufacturing of arms and and uniforms and uh, movement of troops, and then the mass slaughter of people with with um, much more powerful weapons had brought all of this mass warfare had brought uh mass politics. Universal conscription brought universal suffrage uh, in many countries. And then Plato's anxiety about the masses came true under Hitler. Exactly what he predicted. The mass of people turned to the the great man as a saviour, the solution to all their problems, and then the great man turned into a tyrant, one of the worst in history with, with the Holocaust. In the second World War, the United States decided to uh, enter the war and come join to defend Britain and uphold democracy. Mm-hmm. Schumpeter's thinking was very important in dealing with uh, this mass this problem of mass politics the uh, John Stuart Mill, for example, in the 1800s, was very worried about the masses uh, turning to a tyrant. And this this problem of of instability, the rule of law breaking down when the masses turned to the great man, the great saviour, who would become a tyrant. Schumpeter argued that democracy should not be a way of life. Socrates was wrong. It couldn't be. It couldn't even be the republican idea of the common good. Forget all of that. Uh, Modern nations, modern peoples are too diverse. There's too many. We can't have direct democracy. We can't. We'll never agree on the common good. All that we can ever agree on is the procedure for choosing leaders. Um, A Marxist author. I haven't asked you to read, but. Uh, Yorlan Terborn argues that this this was the turning point. Schumpeter arguing that democracy as a procedure meant that democracy was no longer, and the mass voting was no longer a threat to prosperity or a threat to civilization or even a threat to the lives of of minorities, the Holocaust democracy is just a procedure, then it goes hand in glove with capitalism. It's no longer a threat to the elite owners of capital. The, the, the owners of capital are a minority under threat by mass politics. But for Schumpeter if democracy is not about mass politics, instead, if it's about Uh, A marketplace of ideas and a procedure for choosing leaders, then empowering voters with the right to protect themselves from bad government means they can choose one group of leaders rather than another group of leaders. This right in a political market goes hand in glove with the right to choose Ford rather than Holden or Colgate rather than McLean's toothpaste. This choice of individuals in the market, the actual market for things, goes hand in glove with um, the power to protect yourself from bad government through choices in the political market. So democracy as a procedure is necessary for capitalism. It's no longer a threat to capitalism. That's the importance of Schumpeter up there. So David Held's chapter on on Weber and Schumpeter is pretty helpful. Um, Before, I was talking about many people find Held difficult to get across, but hopefully this background helps you absorb it more readily. Both of them point to the limits of democratic politics, which were all too apparent in the 1920s and 30s. I talk, acknowledge that the vote, many voters are ignorant. They don't know who the leaders are. They don't know what they stand for. They don't understand a series of policy problems um, and that emotions and identities are very important in politics. The, the cut of somebody's suit, the style of their haircut, the accent they speak with, these, these uh, emotional uh, indicators of identity are very important. And we know all about this because of television,
2: uh,
1: advertising, political advertising and so on. Um, but they pointed to the strengths of democracy at the same time, that it allows the measuring of popular views. So authoritarian regimes are notorious not knowing what's going on among in the grassroots they don't know what people really think because all they ever hear is the people saying whatever they think the powerful want to hear because it's too dangerous to speak your mind you have to say whatever the powerful want and so they don't find out what's going on um, this is Amartya Sen's S-E-N, he's a Nobel Prize winner in economics. His book, um, Freedom and Development, contrasts that the um, there were uh, famines in um, Imperial India, but as soon as democracy came about, there have been no famines in India since the 1940s. But on the other hand, in China, under authoritarian regimes, there was a major uh, famine um, and many people died in the 1960s in China because authoritarian regimes can't that don 't have a good understanding of popular views and democracy is good at that secondly uh, bentham 's point that it allows the orderly change of governments now Weber I pointed out that democracy is like a marketplace for for Weber. This was a metaphor, and I I want to emphasize, like, it's not actually a market. It's not a real market, it only resembles a market. Um, Now, the the market is is an ideal. You you can see the farmer's market in many suburbs around the place, where people bring in the apples and oranges they've grown at home or in their small farm, and put them up for sale and demand and supply Many small buyers. You have many small growers, producers, and many small buyers. This is market force's work. That's an actual market. Now, the whether BHP or Rio Tinto operates in the same way is a bit debatable as to if it's actually a market in the same way. But let's hope that it approximates the perfect market, the idea. But whether politics actually is a market Is debatable. Is is, is the process of persuasion and public debate, is that comparable to buying and selling a policy? This is the, it's it's easy to take this metaphor too far and it certainly is taken too far in my view. I think it's important to, to resurrect the idea of persuasion, debate, deliberation, and so on. For Schumpeter, he uh, dismissed the ancient idea of democracy as a way of life or a common good and argued that it, in the modern world it can only be a procedure, a means of choosing leaders. And i I warmly recommend you read his two chapters, certainly the second one, where he talks about democracy as a procedure. Robert Diles, um, he got into famous debates with C. Wright Mills and others before him about a ruling class in America, that a, a group of elites actually govern America. They all go to the same schools, the same tennis clubs, the same country clubs, uh, the same universities, and um, share a social community, common background, that's separate to ordinary workers, ordinary people. That's C. Mills' elite idea. Dahl famously dismissed this, and um, went out and studied the local government around the university where he was working at Yale in um, Cambridge, Massachusetts. I think it's Cambridge, Massachusetts, At Yale anyway. And uh, he found that there were many new immigrant groups. Uh, The Irish were coming through, the Italians were coming through and there was uh, a diversity of different groups. It wasn't just the old moneyed elite who governed. He insisted on pluralism rather than elitism. Um, and when I was at university, all the debates were about is there a, is there a, um, a class society or is democracy about pluralism? Dahl, uh, in, recommended that we dropped this term democracy, going back to the ancient Greeks and the Romans and so on. Instead, we talk about polyarchy. So it's not the people who rule, it's a diversity of groups, a poly, plural pluralism of polyarchy, archy as in government. We are governed by many people, was his suggestion. Uh, This completely, utterly failed to take on. Democracy is simply too old and too widely used, and its political scientists are never going to have agreement about the the phrase we're talking about. Um, We we can't even agree on the descriptor, how to modify democracy. Is it procedural, (laughs) as I was talking about before? democracy and terminology about democracy was democratized centuries ago and so scientists can't just come up with new terms for it. Nonetheless, Dahl emphasized party competition and um, C.B. McPherson, Crawford Bro McPherson, takes this up in um, chapter four of his book, for those of you who are interested, uh, and takes up Dahl's emphasis on the party competition. So Dahl was not interested in individual citizens. He takes up the revision that Schumpeter and, and Weber recommend: forget citizens; they're not important. Doesn't matter if they're passive, ignorant, uh, unengaged. What matters is the the role of the parties representing a diverse range of interests in society. Uh, C.B. McPherson goes further and argues that the tension between winning popular consent and getting donations from the rich to fund your, your campaign, this tension between the elite, powerful elites, and the winning majorities is uh, negotiated and learnt about as people join parties and come up through the ranks, that parties socialize people and train people in how to deal with this very difficult contradiction. And parties have become the crucial building block in how procedural democracy works. I greatly admire Robert Dahl, because from the 1970s, when the Marxists started really attacking pluralism and, and his ideas about democracy, he changed his mind. He he moved with the times. He didn't become this old czar defending his old ideas. He accepted that corporate corporations have become too powerful and that there were elements of elitism that... Uh, Pluralism, plural party competition was breaking down, um, and he became quite interested in the protest movements. Even in the 1950s, he saw himself as a social democrat was in America. In America, that he uh, was interested in Scandinavia, and saw himself as a progressive thinker. By the 1970s, he was regarded as as a defender of the status quo anti-revolutionary and so on. But uh, it's interesting, if you read his his later thoughts, it's interesting to see him change his mind. So my view of him in the 70s and 80s, eh, I've changed my mind. I've come to see him uh as much more respectable thinker. Okay, turning to our third part about citizenship. Do you have any questions? About any of that so far? Okay. Uh,
0: procedural
1: citizenship. For those of you who have studied um, the first year unit on values and freedom, or political ideologies, when I was teaching it, um, you will not be surprised to see that procedural democracy, procedural citizenship is based on negative freedom. And just to remind you, that's freedom defined by what it is not. It's defined in the negative. Um, Positive freedom means you are free to discover what you're good at. You are free to rely on social security and then uh, you can go out to the world and find the jobs that you want and work out, fail at things and work out where you should be working, what you are good at. Negative freedom leaves it all up to you. Whatever freedom is, that just that's up to you. Um, but, you, so you can do and say whatever you want, but you cannot uh, call people names. That um, freedom of speech is limited by hate speech. Hate speech is banned. So you define free speech by what it is not, and it is not hate speech. Um, This in turn is based on narrow assumptions about human capacities and motivations. Again, C.B. McPherson points this out very clearly, that uh, procedural democracy is based on the citizen as a calculator, a calculator of their self-interest, rather than a person who has uh, capacities uh, that they want to discover and develop. Um, The Wider assumptions about human nature assumes that people are developmental beings, that we live and learn as we go through life. Um, For procedural citizenship, formal equality is not an end in itself, just as democracy is not an end in itself, neither is equality. This equality before the law, equality in the polling booth, one person, one vote, are only means of achieving justice and protection from oppression, or also uh, determining who's going to be the leader and who's going to govern. So formal equality is not an end in itself and end for some
0: other, something else.
1: Let's um, go through this market metaphor a little more fully just to spell out, um, pinpoint a lot of people's thinking. Um, in democracy as a procedure, voters are thought to be consumers. Parties are like corporations. Policies are the things that corporations sell to the voters. Party programs are like a suite of policies, like a whole advertising campaign, a whole group of products. Voting is like buying an idea. You, you know, talk about uh, selling an idea and the voter's just not buying it. It's important you hear how familiar that sounds. I just don't buy that. It means I'm not persuaded. But that metaphor for persuasion as in buying something can you could forget that it's a metaphor or think that it really is about buying something. And uh, so election campaign uh campaigns really are like marketing campaigns. The advertising companies that that run uh, marketing campaigns for the big corporations are, compete to take on the um, the job to do the election campaign for a political party as well. And they can be very good at it. The same skills for marketing products can be used for marketing a party brand or a policy or, or a person. So the, this metaphor is so widely used that people lose track of it as a metaphor and think that it's actually a a plain description of reality. It's not like a market. It is a market. Uh, This metaphor is deeply, intrinsically, thoroughly individualistic. It's based on a negative assumption about human, a very narrow assumption about human nature and negative freedom. I think it's very important to insist that politics is a collective process. Whether that is republicanism or socialism, or whether it's social liberalism, in John Stuart Mill's idea, it's still a a collective process of debate and persuasion. That listening to other people, being persuaded, It's not the same thing as buying or selling apples and oranges in the market square, at the farmer's market. Um, Listening to reasons, accepting what people say or questioning what they say and then accept being persuaded by a modified version, that sort of process is intersubjective. It's, It's a process among and between people whereas individualism is much more subjective. So how much I pay for something depends on how important it is to me. Other people will pay more for it or less for it because of how they value it. And this subjective valuing of things in the market is personal and private, and the market mediates that. There's all this subjective views, bids, in an auction, say, and then the supply um, pushes the price up. This price mechanism mediates all these subjective individual choices with the amount of supply, the quantity of supply. But by contrast, politics is inter-subjective. It's, it's about ideas circulating among people. The processes of, of persuasion are not personal and private, they're not subjective. They are collective and inter-subjective, between and among people. So after that little uh, rant from me, (laughs) defending how you think about politics, what it is, uh, let's continue with this critical reflection on who can be a citizen, Traditionally, citizenship has been limited by gender. Uh, only men could vote. Only men were thought to be capable of thinking for themselves because only men owned property. And owning property meant that you were not dependent on somebody else for your livelihood and so you, you weren't inclined to think the way they did so that you could secure your, your um, income. If you are independent, if you have your own wealth, then you can think for yourself, with the traditional rationale. This has uh, disappeared, as you all know, in modern societies, all residents, all adults are uh, allowed to vote or entitled to vote. It's no longer a privilege, it's a right of citizenship. Uh, nationality is still a controversy a controversy about immigrants seeking citizenship and we saw a great deal of that a couple of years ago when a series of politicians were ruled ineligible to uh, be candidates for parliament because um, only people with full citizenship are allowed to be candidates. Um, long-term residents can acquire the right to vote, but uh, without full citizenship, they're not entitled to uh, be a candidate for election to the parliament. Um, so nationality is, is still uh, uh, there's some controversy about how strict this should be. Should um, people be allowed to be citizens of another country? at the same time as being citizens of this country and still uh, represent people reliably? Might they be spies if actually their citizens and their loyalties belong to somewhere else? Um, There are still limits on the rights of women. Uh, LGBT people no longer in Australia, but certainly in many other countries. Um, No gay marriage, no... um, inheritance from one couple, one person to the to their intimate partner. Superannuation rights and so on are very limited in some countries. Um, there are still limits around indigenous people and various cultural minorities in different countries. And I could add that the age is still a limit. People below 18 are not trusted to be capable of thinking for themselves. They're thought to be too strongly influenced by their parents or older people, or perhaps even their peer group. Um, They just follow along with what everybody else is thinking, as if people in their 20s and 30s don't do that. (laughs) As if suddenly at 18, you begin to think for yourself. Um, This is one of the controversies in um, 1918, uh, when the right to vote was brought down from 21 down to 18 in 1918 Um because the soldiers, the younger 18, 19 year olds who were being sent out to war and so they, they couldn't have the right to vote at 21, perhaps the younger. So how ought citizens rule? They rule according to majorities rather than individuals. Uh, citizens have minimal obligations to vote, In Australia was compulsory, in the rest of the world it's merely a, an obligation, but uh, it's compulsory to pay taxes, it's compulsory to obey the law, so if you see a red light you must stop and allow people coming across you to drive straight through the green light safely. Uh, We have an obligation to serve on a jury. If you're called to jury service, it is your obligation to front up and have your to listen to the court to to the trial. In almost all liberal democracies, voting is voluntary. The exceptions are Australia and Belgium, and I understand I should check up on Chile as well. Um, Judith Brett One of the books you can review at the end of the trimester, Judith Brett, has a fantastic history of how uh, compulsory voting emerged in Australia. Very interesting. Um, So voting is voluntary, but excessive activism is dangerous for stability. I read a fantastic memoir, Swedish uh, union economist, came from Germany, growing up in Germany in the 1920s and 30s as a young man, he joined the Social Democrats as a young man. And in the 20s, everybody was very, very colour conscious about their clothes because the colours represented the different parties. So if you wore red, that showed you were a communist or a socialist. If you wore blue, it showed you were a liberal. And if you wore brown, it showed you were a Nazi or fascist. And this got down to the colour of your bath towel at the beach or your swimming bathers uh, or the colour of your hat, the the politicisation of culture and the activism. uh, You know, if you think there was a lot of interest in politics during the period of Trump, there was, it was even more intense in Germany in the 1920s. Um, The polarisation and the activism of very engaged citizens can be dangerous for stability according to this procedural rule model of of how citizens ought to behave. They ought to be a little bit disengaged, a little bit um, distant. So public deliberation is secondary. It's not terribly important. Um, So citizens, express their review views based on their position in the economy. So employees have one view, employers have another view, importers, exporters, manufacturers, miners, because of their function, their role in the economy, they have uh, different interests. These interests are assumed to be fixed according to their position in the economy. And representatives then aggregate all these different views. And they do that within political parties. So the good citizen is a competitive individual, calculating what's good for me, what's in it for me. Citizens pursue private freedom. What's good for me? What's good for my family? What's good for the people I know and the people around me? The few citizens are prepared to manage the state, and that's just fine. Civil disobedience is conceivable but only called for in extreme circumstances. And you must be uh, willing to accept the penalties because you are so convic- convinced about the injustices that you refuse to obey the law uh, because the law is wrong and you're standing up for what is right and therefore you go to prison. Um, So all up, passive citizenship is good for democracy on this procedural model. The main site is the nation-state. Local bodies are not terribly important, uh, even though citizens are closer to their representatives and more likely to know exactly who they are. International institutions are also important. The liberal internationalism regards the nation-state, as a citizen. It's no longer the individual, it's this whole collective body, the state becomes a citizen of world or international society. So Australia can be a good international citizen when it upholds its treaty obligations and and contributes to maintaining world peace. Though of course there are many. Criticise Australia for being less than a good citizen in world society because of uh, refugees and um, environmental policies finally uh, the democratic deficit lack of accountability the uh, apathy and antagonism towards politicians it's arguable that procedural citizenship procedural democracy is somewhat incoherent that the parts don't entirely all match up. The passivity and a private orientation do promote stability, but they can end up undermining legitimacy. The the government doesn't really have popular consent because the popular opinion is not really engaged. Um, liberal and democracy procedural democracy endorses both the nation state it's a prime site of citizenship and universal human rights. So you have the democratic citizen of a nation but you also have the international human rights of people anywhere. At the same time we decide who comes here and how they come by boat or plane. That's a very Republican phrase, we decide who comes here, which there's a tension there to liberal internationalism, liberal democracy on the international arena. Similarly, there's a tension between democratic politics, democratic citizenship and global free trade. So governments, parties compete for election by saying that we can make our country great again. We are going to charge tariffs on imports to protect our local manufacturers. We are going to encourage people to buy local. Don't buy made in China. Buy the locally made products because uh, this is part of who uh, us, the people. We, the people, promote our democratic citizenship and there's a tension there with um, international trade, the, the rights to buy and sell things around the world. So, yes, liberal democracy can transform itself because self-critique and dissent are central to liberalism and the open society. And yes, it is the best means of coping with complex dynamic change. It's the best way of, of dealing with immigration, with multiculturalism, multiple religions and so on, Uh, but no, liberal democracy is not so good at dealing with globalization. There's an incoherence between democratic procedures and universal rights. Next week uh, we talk much more about participatory democracy which takes up this uh, passivity and argues for much more engagement and participation, attempts to reinvent uh, Athenian democracy in contemporary politics. So that's, um, are there any questions before I start to, um, while I'm setting up discussion questions,
0: does anyone want to ask me anything?
1: Content Um,
0: one up to yes, content. Weekly topics
1: share again. Um, recent proposals and developments.
0: Procedural democracy. There we are.
1: What are the strengths of the procedural model? Might be group one. How many people are we? We are one, two, three, four people. And what are the shortcomings of the procedural model of democracy? are citizens ignorant and apathetic about politics and mass education? Uh, hmm. How about um, I leave you four to talk about these four questions, just in one group for about, what do you say, 10 minutes?
0: So about that all the questions?
1: There's four people and there's four questions. Yeah. So four of you talk to each other. This means you lot, you have to um, unmute your microphones and talk to each other. So can we just check? I've heard Tony's microphone works, Michael's microphone works, Jane. Hi. Hi. And Willow. Hi. Yeah, great. We can all talk to each other so it's four minutes past at uh, quarter past I'll come back I'll give you ten minutes to talk about these questions and work out your answers okay thumbs up from Jane sounds good okay I'll talk to you soon
3: So I suppose we should probably start with question one, the strengths of the procedural model. I feel as though, as kind of a jumping off point, one of the biggest strengths of the model is that because it's so rooted in constitutionalism and the strength of the legal system, it's hard to institute radical change because there's a lot of checks and balances
4: yeah that that is true, yeah, I agree. I um, also think like that there is regular voting is a strength as well. That kind of plays into checks and balances. Yeah. Um. When he was talking about, like, Nazism earlier and, like, tyranny, was he saying that, like, that's less likely with procedural democracy because of those checks and balances?
3: I think he was saying that, yeah, the system promotes against that because it's less about mass participation and more about targeted participation because voting is voluntary in most places.
5: Yeah, right, right, right. Are you guys a fan of presidential democracy? <laughs> like, do you like it?
0: <laughs> As it stands, yes. Um, but
6: uh, I top. get bothered by the fact that it's it, this concentration on, it's just what you do. You go along and you vote and uh, and then you sit completely back and and virtually no one participates. That's essentially where Schumpeter is coming from.
4: Yeah, I kind of agree. I think that like politically, like activated or like really in tune people um, are important. And yeah, activism is important as well.
3: Yeah, yeah. I think a shortcoming is that it very much incentivizes the loudest voices. And kind of the most charismatic leaders as well. People who are the most adept at playing identity politics are the most likely to succeed in this model. And it might not actually represent the majority opinion.
6: Yeah, I found something that in um, Maddox, which is one of the extra readings. Uh, and I was just saying at the very end, uh, just before the lecture started, but... Uh, some studies showed among citizens that there are authoritarian types with anti-democratic personalities who can upset delicate equilibrium. So yeah, I mean there's the loud ones. Um prize example that we've seen from a, from the outside point of view is, is that the whole, not just Trumpism, but what preceded it, the whole tea party business where gatherings of local citizens sort crazy. Did anybody do the the previous I think Michael did at least the previous unit uh um that just went
3: Yeah, I think yeah. While it it does encourage a lot of radicalism as well, it also allows for a lot more acceptance of diversity, which I think is another strength. I would oh, yeah. say. Yeah. In in general, it's a more tolerant model than some of the other models, but it's hard to say if it's the best model without like looking at the other proposed like additions to it. Do you
5: think so? The um, potential for radicalism, which I mean, it's on the assumption that we're not more, we're not people who are going to lean towards that. We always think that we're rational people and therefore we're going to vote for the right choices and there's always those free people. But I think that we're seeing more and more in today's society that people are actually leaning towards radicalism a lot more. And then a procedural democracy becomes more risky because, you know, how many people do you see posting stuff about vaccines are sent by the government and things like that. I used to think that that would be only like a really fringe population, but and especially with like Trump and stuff too, I think we're seeing more and more that it's actually more likely than we think. Yeah, I think
4: that's a really good
3: point. Yeah, I think a weakness of the model is that it assumes people are always going to be thinking like logically in the best for their own self-interest but people are very susceptible to being tricked.
2: Yeah. yeah.
5: Oh, sorry, you talk, Willis. Oh, sorry. I was going to say, I think that it, um because this model assumes a lot of apathy in the general population towards politics, aside from the few who are really motivated, but those motivated people are often considered to be those who are educated, so therefore they're going to be more rational, when actually a lot of people are really politically motivated it's just that it's not always in a positive way and it's not always in a... They're not politically motivated to necessarily participate in the system but rather just to criticise it or become more extreme.
4: Yeah, and I think, like, if you, like, look into question four, that, you know, the idea of Facebook and people not really reading things thoroughly and, yes, you have more access to information but people can't necessarily, um, like, process the information the way that it's, that it's intended and they misuse information that, like, it's potentially not better to have all this access because, like, they just aren't responsible with how they apply information?
5: Yeah, absolutely. Like, and people aren't responsible at all. People don't care to fact-check any of their information. And I think for a lot of people, it's even really occurred to them to do so. Um, yeah. Whereas if we did have a bit more limited access, then people would have to go seek it out would think a bit more critically, but because they're just completely saturated in information and articles all the time, you sort of take it without even noticing? Yeah, and I think, like,
4: with digital media, when there are mistakes and when, like, um, you know, they need to do reprints or, like, articles are updated, people don't always see the updates, so they're just, they, like, their, their beliefs have maybe been disproven or, like, the articles have substantially yeah. changed, but they don't see that.
5: Yeah, I mean, I think we, the vaccines causing autism is a big example of that. Like that's been discredited so many times, but it didn't matter as soon as the idea got its legs under it, it was gone. Like now there's like <laughs> organizations, corporations that are based on untrue, like things that aren't even facts.
2: I mean,
3: yeah, I think people are. Even not not just like willing to ignore or look over it, but I would say less willing to actually accept that information as well. I mean, yeah. with the vaccines cause autism, that guy still gives like presentations on like how his paper is right, even after being like de licensed.
2: Yeah.
3: So people are people are much will much more willing to listen to views that confirm with their own.
5: Yeah, and I definitely think I mean as what I was like saying before, but I think that. Something like that, you hear, like I heard about when I was younger, and I was like, oh, you know, that's so insane that people would believe something that's not true. And now working with people with disabilities, it's something that comes up a lot, like a lot of people believe that. And I think that it's a lot of these ideas that seem completely irrational we think of as being not very common. The more you actually look into it, the more you're like, oh, no, actually, this is quite popular. And we have a little too much faith in people, I think, to be rational.
3: And I think to go back to the apathy problem, it's not even just about apathy, but also just about like disenfranchisement, where a lot of people reach that level of apathy because they don't feel as though the system represents them. Yeah. Especially when like most politicians are like cookie cutter, rich old white men, and it's hard to like break into that sphere and
5: change things. Yeah. But then like you said before, Michael, now that... Because a lot of politics is based on identity now that it's cool to be young or it's cool to be a person of colour or, like, it's not, cool, not cool, but, like, it's cool to have representation. Maybe that'll change.
3: Mm. I mean, at the moment, it's, it's a lot of tokenistic change. Where people
2: oh, yeah, I'm not they on to take it. on
3: a point of view and they'll say they support it, but it's really just at the, like, most superficial level.
5: Yeah, I definitely agree.
4: Have any of you yeah. seen, um, miseducation or misrepresentation on ABC?
5: No, have was...
4: about female politics, like females in politics in Australia.
5: Yeah, I've heard really good things about it.
4: Yeah. Well, I was watching an episode of it, um, like last week and they were talking about when Labor added gender quotas and the girls who they call like the quota girls
2: mm-hmm. or even
4: like Penny Wong and people like of that kind of level who are in the party now are still referred to as quota girls and like, even though that's, like, done net good for, like, the party and many people think for the country, like, there is that ignorance of and that idea that it is just identity politics and they only got in because of the quotas and, like, they've not contributed anything of value because of that. Yeah. And that you stuck with them that. like, 20 years.
6: Yeah. You still yeah. See that being said all the time. You know, why, why have you got a woman? Why didn't you just go for our best... Um, yeah but there, it's more than just a, a particular person might have the best qualifications, but they i think a lot of the time lots of people have got the right qualifications and if you need some representation of uh, the whole community you've got to include women yeah and they've they obviously they've got to be um yeah good skillful um, um Completely biased, but I think that uh, most of the women in federal parliament and labor at the moment are excellent, and I think that we see that the small group of liberal women in politics in the federal parliament moment almost universally
2: are pretty ordinary
4: well what was interesting like misrepresent um misrepresented is that one of the like liberal female politicians was calling like them quota girls as well, which I just thought was, like, really, yeah, like, it was just insane. But, again, it's, like, it's against her own interest probably that she's saying that.
5: I honestly, like, I'm not a fan of quotas because I think it really just credits the work of people who would have gotten in on the quota, you know. I think that a lot of people, and especially now, like, obviously diversity is really, really important, that we should have it in a more genuine way than just a quota. Especially when, as obviously that documentary is showing, Jane, that you can just easily dismiss the people who got the role by being like, oh, you're just here to suit a quota. So therefore you're not equal to the rest of us.
2: Hmm.
3: I mean, coming from a psych background, quotas are generally like one of the least representative measures you can actually use to like measure randomness in a population. And I think that we talked, it was talked about like our right to, like, attend a jury, and that's an obligation. I feel as though juries are a much more accurate cross-section of the community because they are so much more rigorous than politics, whereas politics has become more of a profession, as was, like, said in the argument.
5: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Funny that you say that about juries, though, because, like I said, a lot of people uh, feel the opposite about juries.
4: I was going to say, I feel the opposite about juries. I don't have an accurate representation of people at all.
0: Hello.
3: Hi. Hey, well, we kind of, we've kind of just discussed sporadically. <laughs> discussed sporadically?
6: Well, we have managed to cover all of those four points for
3: uh,
6: yeah. a couple of minutes each, and we sort of go back and forth a bit about some of them. Because it's just oh, okay. like, a bit of um, referring back from, say, number three to number two there the people are ignorant and apathetic and is that a shortcoming of the procedural role okay but yeah
1: how, how about you have um answer one question each yeah
3: <laughs> i I'd, I'd be happy to tackle the first one okay i think one of the major strengths the procedural model of democracy is because it emphasizes a lot of constitutionalism and a very existing rigorous system, it becomes hard to implement a lot of like radical change because there's so many checks and balances and because there's regular transitions of power, it becomes a lot harder to upset that. So there's a lot of stability in the system and that's kind of seen through the right to vote and regular voting as well as that. It also has a lot of social benefits. We talked about multiculturalism and participation, and it's able to usually encourage a lot of tolerance for a range of issues.
0: Yeah,
3: and these kind of bled into the key weaknesses as well, which is somebody else's. Yeah, <laughs> they, they they
1: sort of yeah corresponds. I can hear a whole lot of parrots in the background from there. Who has parrots? But- around the, what does that me? Maybe it's my garden with little parrots. <laughs> okay, oh well, Let's talk about question two.
4: Um, for shortcomings, we kind of talked about um, the, the idea that people should participate and that activism is a good thing and only doing it in voting cycles like may not be the best option um like there is a potential for radicalism through either like charismatic leaders or the loudest voice taking power mm. um i can't really remember what else we said we kind of went back and forth on this one
6: can i add one thing in there that we didn't really get to but it, it came up with um actually certainly in my assignment um that looking at um, countries like turkey and hungary they have, once you get someone in who's uh, an authoritarian type, they are able to manipulate the whole process and both uh, Auburn and Erdi and have have cemented themselves into place. They still will claim, I know Hungary certainly is at the moment, that, that there are yeah, they have a good level of democracy and everybody gets to vote, and et cetera. But they've, um, in the past few years, they've they've completely um, distorted the whole set of proceedings that um, we think of as democracy. gerrymandering right. yeah, like... and, and so forth, and scrubbing yeah. people
1: off the off the voter rolls, making it difficult for the old opposition parties to
2: operate.
1: Yeah. Mm. Yeah, a shortcoming, I suppose, then uh, procedural democracy is vulnerable to um, social media seems to have opened up this vulnerability. Um, there's a Trump on Twitter others as well,
3: um, expose that shortcoming.
1: Did Did anyone talk about apathy?
3: Uh, I mean, we did kind of speak about the end of like, there's a limit to a sort of rational self-interest. People can kind of be convinced to vote against their own interests and convinced to campaign against something that is actually beneficial for them. Whereas a limit of procedural democracy is that it kind of assumes that everyone's going to do what's best for themselves when that's not always the case, for better or for worse.
6: Yeah. Yeah, that's what I was saying earlier about that this. Yes, there are a lot of people who are ignorant and apathetic about politics. And that feeds back into the second one. It's a major shortcoming that people can have um, pick up all sorts of Nonsense ideas. The anti-vax one's the obvious one at the moment, um, and run with them. There are entire uh, large sections of community in the US, in particular at the moment, that are just literally helping to spread to spread the you know, COVID by not bothering to get vaccinated, not wanting to do any of the
1: yeah.
6: masking, everything else, and that's an element of. Um, weakness. It, it's a weakness, but it, it's it's an ignorance because they the the and it comes from the number four too. The information is out there, but they mm. don't want to know. They want to say, okay, it, I've got it, my ideas.
1: That's it. So Jane, you you started off talking about question 2 were wouldn't you? Yeah. Yeah. Do you um. Are you are you, uh, you studying politics as your major? Yeah. And if, if people ask you old school friends or people you might play sport with or people you, you don't know very well bump into and ask you, what are you studying? What reaction do you get if you say that you're studying politics?
2: Um,
4: I think people who know me well know that I'm quite a politically minded person. Like, I think I've always been very, like, strongly opinionated and it's quite well known about me from high school. Um, And it was the same, like, when I studied global politics and legal studies at school. But, like, people who kind of don't know me outside of that, like, they're interested in it. I mean, you get a little bit of, like, oh, do you want to be a politician? Like, what do you want to do with your, you know, career? Mm. But I don't know. Like, I mean, I do get into debates with people sometimes and get a bit lively. And my friends, we all debate a lot, like, amongst each other. But I don't – I think a lot of there, – but there are lots of people who are apathetic to politics. Like, I think I've got a lot of friends who do, like, theatre and stuff like that. And that community is much less political than most of my uni friends.
0: Theatre? Really?
4: Yeah, in Geelong.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay. Maybe in Geelong.
4: But I suppose, honestly, like this is something I've noticed. Like with some of my friends who went to public schools, I don't know why it is. Maybe they just weren't offered subjects like level politics, so it was it's much less in their frame of reference. A lot of them are really bamboozled by some of the conversations that kind of we have around them.
1: Yeah. Well,
2: that's
1: not hard. <laughs> I found Trump endlessly bamboozling. Mm. Um, no, I'm glad to hear that I, I, had, I had the same feeling about people I met in music, musicians, not interested in politics. Um, I subscribe to a, a surfing web page, which we gives weather reports and it also is a really good journalist. I really admire his journalism. Um, and so I subscribe to it. But he um, recently talked about how little time he has for politics and politicians. It just seems pretty
0: typical. As a journalist,
4: I think lots of people are disenfranchised with politics. And like I've got a lot of friends in like the Labour, like who are involved with like Young Labour, and a lot of them are real diehard unionists. And I don't think that the union like this is a whole different thing really like captures what young people want or like are looking for in politics even though it may be in their interest maybe this is part of being apathetic and ignorant is like yes unions would be good for young workers but no one really wants to join a union no one wants to pay for it there isn't that collectivism like in the workplace as an identity anymore at least not in my generation in my opinion
1: yeah, well it's a lot more than your opinion. It's this is well backed up by by the numbers. The, the, the unionization is below fifteen percent. And that's that's the the heart of it is in the public service. Teachers, police, nurses that that's the heart of the union movement these days.
6: Um, it is. You, you just don't see much I've, I've got a teaching background and I was actually always a a union organizer or whatever round along the most only of them are school whichever one it was but I saw numbers just just membership it used to be standard um when i in my first year of teaching it was just oh, I'm You're going to join the union yeah, of course and um name taken and um contributions taken out of salary, I'm certain. But those numbers dropped away. So even 20 years ago when I quit teaching, um, there wouldn't have been more than half the staff at my school who unionists anymore. Yeah. Just, just, just didn't, and the ones who were, most, most of them was just pretty automatic. They didn't care much. Yeah. yeah. Um, union meetings would have three or four people in. And forty.
0: Mm.
4: When I was younger, I went with my mum to march with the nurses in Melbourne. Like when was that? In like the twenty.
1: The big strike.
4: Yeah. Sorry.
1: The big strike, the nurses strike. Yeah. Mm. What was the leader's name then? What's her name? I, guess.
4: I don't remember. I remember seeing her speak though, or well, them speak. I don't know.
1: Okay. <laughs> Are
2: you talking
6: about Irene Bolger or someone else? Oh, could be, yeah. She was certainly one of them.
0: Yeah. Mm.
1: It's, I, I think there's been a resurgence of interest in environmentalism amongst younger people. And some of the stuff around gay rights and Black Lives Matter, there's a returning interest in that sort of thing but not really
3: labor versus liberal it's just so boring i think a lot of it comes from like social issues versus economic issues where social issues are a lot easier to campaign for and advocate for because there's always going to be a group affected by that who you can help like represent Whereas with economic issues such as unions and labour movements, it's a lot harder to kind of gain initial support for that. Mm -hmm. I suppose it's it's just kind of a less attractive issue, especially in like a framing lens and like in media news.
2: Yeah,
5: I think economic issues are also harder to understand because like when we talk about citizens being ignorant and apathetic, I think that a lot of people would self-identify as inner and toward towards politics. And when you say, the like, key words, when you talk about unions or when you talk about economic issues, it's just, like, a part of their brain just turns off and they just go, this is something I don't understand. This is too much for me. I'm not smart enough. Or when you use words, like, even, like, liberalism, people just think, I'm not, like, I don't understand this. I'm not into politics. And they switch off, whereas they don't have that when you talk about racism, because that doesn't seem as political, but seems a lot personal.
1: And the injustice, slavery, is it, it's like in your face, injustice.
5: Yeah, yeah, and, that's, and it's like, it sounds good, but it's an massive issue, whereas when you talk about the other parts of modern slavery, obviously about things like fast fashion, um, yeah, yeah. like with trades and everything, that sounds, people just think that they're not smart enough for that. Like Jane was saying a lot of her friends are into politics and most of my friends are like nursing or architecture or things like that. And they like talking about politics with me when we like when it comes up. But most of the time they think it just is something that's far removed from them. They're interested, that they're not smart enough to understand or they're not, they don't think towards it. And when, like, political things come on TV because they're taught, you're taught from a young age that it's like, oh, politics is what people who are really smart, who are really interested in, like, boring stuff do, and it's not so important to you. So then people think that they're apathetic towards politics because they don't understand that it's something that's so
0: personal.
4: Also, like, something I see online a lot, especially when it comes to, like, feminism and women's issues, is, like, the misapplication of ideas. Like, there's a lot of women online who are pro-sex work, but really they're just trying to, like, package sex work to really young girls, and that's actually not, like, a good thing. Like, for example, like OnlyFans. Like, there's a whole kind of pyramid scheme aspect to OnlyFans. But there's a lot of women who perpetuate that OnlyFans is great and it's a great way to make money and it's all about sexual freedom where in reality, like, you're selling sex to teenage girls. Yeah. yeah. Sorry,
1: can I just hold you up? What is OnlyFans?
4: Um, OnlyFans is created so that, say, so like, if I'm an internet celebrity, people could pay me for access to, like, premium content or, like, specialised content for, like, you know, like it's like the pay- content behind a paywall, but yeah. people use it like like sex workers use it as a way to like sell intimate videos or like messages to their fans. So okay. there are women who are making say $100,000 a month of selling like naked or semi-naked photos or like men pay them for private messages. But then there's also like an affiliate link program through OnlyFans. So if people sign up through your link, um, you like make a percentage of them. Okay. Yeah,
5: and so you pay a certain amount of dollars a month for a subscription. But I think Dr. gang—I'm sure you'll probably know more about this than me. There's a big market on OnlyFans for girls because oh, you have to be over 18. A lot of teenage girls make age as, as they turn 18, and it's like oh, I'm legal now. It's all this—it's—it's it's dodgy. And like, I personally am pro sex work, but I think that it's like a very complex issue. And like what you were saying, Jane, a lot of women don't want to learn the ins and outs of all these ideas that they're promoting, but they just want to be seen as promoting ideas typically. Yeah. And they think, oh, this sounds kinda of nice. And instead of actually going in depth because it's that's political, they just wanna talk about surface level things. And I think that it can lead to a lot of miseducation.
1: There's a there's a lot of um data about disengagement people aren't members of of unions and parties and churches and all sorts of old groups but that it doesn't doesn't account for like get up or um change.org all these um online petitions um
4: with like online petitions i don't even think that most people in Australia would understand that an online petition isn't valid in Parliament?
1: Unless it's post, unless it's taken from the online and posted in Parliament. <laughs> okay.
5: uh, Andrew, sorry, just quickly with what you're saying about membership declining and like things like churches. I think that Obviously, like people are less religious now, but I also think that a big reason why people are no longer interested in participating in things like that is because a lot of people just participated in it for a sense of community. And now with social media, you don't really need to join organizations like that to meet other people and to talk to other people.
1: Yeah, yeah. So it's it's possible that the apathy and and antagonism towards politics uh, is a Um, well it's fake news (laughs) that the participation and the engagement is just taking different forms
5: now yeah Mm -hmm. sorry okay Uh,
4: I think people are more engaged about snappy social things but kind of I think Michael said this earlier but like the media is more focused on social stuff rather than um, like economic things because like it, it it plays up to people's shorter attention span. So I think and it's more contentious. Yeah.
1: I, personally I think it's the it's because of the collapse of, of unionism, the labor movement. Australia's becoming more like America. Where well we don't have the slavery quite the slavery background that America has. But race and gender are far more polarizing in America than than economics are. It's
2: Yeah.
5: Well it's more emotional too. Like you have an emotional reaction to acts of racism or when you're saying slavery. And even like slavery, when you see pictures of kids working in factories you have an emotional reaction whereas a lot of economic issues and other things that are political, you don't have an emotional reaction because there's not, it's not as easy to advertise. Well, it always,
1: it always wasn't emotional. I, I don't buy that contrast between, you know, the old economic cleavages versus the new social movements, the new cleavages, because economic identities were always emotional as well. Um, I, I mean, I get completely what you're saying. That, that um, sexism or racism is clear and obvious. You don't you don't need to have it spelled out for you. You have people calling you names. You get it. That the hidden injuries of class are pretty real. And people know when they're looked down on.
2: I like think.
3: People. I think an interesting aspect of that as well is in recent times, I would say that there's been a very much, very much of an uptick in social progressivism. I mean, there's so much more acceptance of gay rights, racial rights and that sort of thing. But -hmm. at the same time, there's a lot more like economic inequality and kind of wealth disparity is at its highest level. And so it kind of feeds back into that apathy where At an an economic sense, it seems a lot more hopeless and that nothing can be done, whereas with social issues, because so much is changing and so much progress has been made, very visible progress, it feels a lot easier to campaign for those issues. Yeah,
4: Yeah, there's
2: something
3: to that.
4: Mm. But also, Andrew, what you were saying about people knowing they're being looked down upon, I don't necessarily know if that's always true in Australia. I think there are a lot of people who vote liberal, I think i said this before, that, are, that don't have multiple properties but think that they will. You know what I mean? Like they're the aspirational liberal voter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And like whereas they'd be much better off voting for labour or a smaller party who actually has their interests at heart and would provide more social welfare that would benefit them.
5: Mm. I actually think there was, I'm not going to be able to cite it, but I do think there was a study I saw not long ago that most people can't accurately identify their own socioeconomic economic status. Or they don't they can't identify what class they're in because like they're just there's just not an understanding anymore of what of what middle class really means for upper middle class. And I think that a lot of that aspirational ideas that Jane's talking about comes into that as well. Whereas like a lot of people don't criticize billionaires because they hold on to the thought that one day they might be a billionaire and they don't wanna to have to say redistribute their wealth if they become a billionaire, even though you're much most people are much, much more likely to you know, become homeless than they are to become a billionaire. I just think, like, I don't know if it's, I don't know why, but I just you see a lot of that, especially on social media now.
2: Mm.
6: Yeah, the description, temporarily embarrassed billionaires. But so have it a couple of times just recently, Americans all regard themselves in particular as and the people who are just, at the moment, they're not, billionaires to billionaires but they they've just got to keep working
1: at it. <laughs> mm. I, um, I remember a first year politics lecture, the person stood up, I, I've never chased this up, it stuck with me. It made so much sense that people vote according to the same way as their parents voted and in large proportion. Most people vote the same way they, they growing up with other people around them voting. But if their parents vote differently, then the children vote the same way as the mother. Because if they're different, then the father doesn't really care and the mother does care and the children follow the more engaged person who's more interested and cares more. But then the other major force major influence on how people come to vote is life experience at work. So if you start off, you um, know, small business and the boss doesn't pay any super, cash in hands, rips you off, is nasty, aggressive, and you just hate it, you just feel like terrible, then be, you're more likely to turn to labour because of bad experiences at work. But if you, you get in a workplace and everyone uh, collaborates and there's a lot of um, good leadership and people following and everyone works together, then you're much more likely to vote liberal and, and be anxious about unions interfering in your work, you know. So your experience at work is the second, but it's a, it's a, it was a secondary
3: influence on how you vote. I feel as though like experience at work could also be an illusion and people could be made to feel as though the, their work environment is something they need or something they can't get away from. And that would also steer them away from unionism. I mean, just recently Amazon pretty much busted all ideas of like unions by campaigning and like giving false worker testimonies of how great it was to work at Amazon. And for a lot of people, they don't really have another option, but they are also being convinced that it's it, it's where they fit in best. Well, the Amazon workplace is likely to generate
1: voters for the Democrats. That sort of campaign backfires. It <laughs> that's pretty well known.
4: I also think like it's pretty well documented. Like, just even, like, through social media, how bad Amazon's working conditions are. Like, Mm. there's videos all the time that I see go viral of people saying they're not allowed to sit down, you know, they get in trouble for going to the bathroom. Like, I've seen videos of people on the street, like, yelling at Jeff Bezos to, like, give workers' bathroom breaks, to give workers' human rights.
1: Yeah, yeah. That has big corporations and their anti-union campaigns
0: Even
1: if they succeed in keeping unions out of the workforce, uh, the people themselves are not likely to vote Republican after that.
5: Um, Jane, with what you said also, I know I get talking about fast fashion, but some places like fast fashion are well known for, you know, being unethical, but because people talk all the time about don't buy off Shein, it's so it's so bad. You know, all the t- all the time that people get criticised for it. It's the same thing as, as, as Amazon because it's so because that organisation is being targeted so much. I think that a lot of other unethical brands, they, they're like being let go. People don't focus on them because they're so busy focused on attacking brands like Shein or Amazon. People. Still, like talk all the time about how bad Amazon is and how badly they treat their workers. And there's so many other companies that treat their workers just as bad, but they don't cop any of it because everyone sort of just found their target.
4: I definitely think that's true. And as well, online, I see a lot of people say there's no ethical consumption under capitalism. Therefore, it's fine for me to buy from Shein because Shein's actually not any more, say, unethical than Country Road. What's Shein, sorry? Um, it's like an Asian fast fashion website. You can buy like clothes for, you know, like five to twenty dollars is like kind of their standard price.
5: Yeah. And it's massive. Like you can buy nearly anything that you like any sort of clothes you want to buy or accessories. And yeah, I think that's totally true. I've seen that as well where people justify buying unethical things because they like, oh, there's no ethical options. When there is but they are more expensive and it's not a reality for I mean a lot of the people buying our Shein are teenage girls who have casual jobs and can't afford to buy sustainable clothing from like, you know, 200 dollars pair of jeans from some beachside store. But I think that people do use that as an excuse a lot.
0: Mm. Yeah.
4: You're having a bit of a cultural education, Andrew?
1: <laughs> a little bit. Uh not so much cultural education as I just get so jaded, I'm sick of that of bloody so many platforms. I'm just over it they bloody platforms they're like keeping up with your stupid password. <laughs> I don't need an education, I just need like a coping mechanism <laughs> you know I, I can't keep up with my own reading and my research because of all this blood. <sighs> yeah. <laughs> Academics, <laughs> as a rule, are pretty online oriented. You know, I I, I got my first online computer in 1990, first email, um, and uh, certainly ahead of most compared to most most parts of the population. I'm not like the IT industry, perhaps, but yeah, I'm, I'm not like an old fuddy-duddy. It's more <laughs> just a bit over over the path of it.
4: I think that kind of plays into question four, though. Like, with the – we spoke about this as well, that because, like, the news cycle and access to media has changed, Mm. people can find information to support their views that kind of goes into an echo chamber. Also, like, they misapply. it. Like, studies and stuff, like Joe Rogan this week applied a study about chicken vaccinations as to why you shouldn't get the COVID vaccine, and then really? like, yeah, and then the and the, the author of the study had to come out and say, no, this is very specific to a one type of chicken vaccination. It has nothing to do with COVID, oh. or even human vaccination.
5: And even the way that the media is structured now, people like idiots like Joe Rogan can have a voice, and um, oh, I'm not gonna be able to remember his name, Alex, Alex something who's similar, like a really right wing American. He did get his show taken off him in the end, but like went on there and he was the one who had that, had that um, video went viral of him saying that they put chemicals in the water that make frogs gay and just like really <laughs> dumb things. And then people eat it up. They love it.
2: Joe
1: Rogan, he's the most, it's the um, highest ranking podcast. He uh, used to be a comedian or some sort of thing.
4: I think he still is a comedian Any he um, commentates MMA fights.
1: Ah, yes. Um, my colleague, you know, she, uh, in, in um, the lecture in, in Burwood on Monday, Maria Ray turned up to give... Have you heard any of the recordings of colleagues coming along to the lecture in Burwood? Maybe not. Um, I've been inviting them to come along and talk about their research for 10 minutes. And Maria came along and talked all about she uh, researchers' media and politics, teachers' unit on politics for the media. And one of her recent studies, uh, I'm in a writing group with her. I read her a recent draft of this article about um, sat, the, the knowledge about sound. How do you understand sound? And uh, so she looked at the most popular podcast and the most popular broadcast, popular episode in that podcast, Then Joe Rogan interviewed Elon Musk. Have you heard of or you remember that one?
4: Yeah, they got high together, didn't they?
1: That's the one. (laughs) Drank whiskey and smoked dope online in the studio. Um, But you just went through his... Rogan's appeal comes from working class turns of phrase. He's like Trump. He, he plays the idiot, uh, incoherent, he's rambling, but is actually a lot smarter than you. It's like a street smart, savvy than he uh, comes across.
4: I don't think Joe Rogan is smart. Like I've not ever watched him religiously, religiously, but I've seen kind of episodes that have where he has interesting people on. He just is good at agreeing with the person in the room is what I think. And I think people mistake that or people think that he like contradicts himself. I think he's a good interviewer in the sense that he gets a lot out of his like the people he has on the podcast.
1: Mm-hmm. That takes intelligence.
4: Exactly. Yeah. Like he is smart. But he's just mis so relax,
1: relax people. Make them feel valued. And they open up.
5: Well, with the um, Elon Musk thing, it comes back to what we were talking about earlier about people thinking that they the aspirational or temporarily embarrassed billionaires. Elon Musk, I blame him for a lot of that. And that I think people think that he's just like a Tony Stark genius individual who had a great idea and then got rich on it. And then like that. Elon Musk's parents own an emerald mine. And he does all these things like goes on podcasts and gets high and tweets about how he smokes all this weed and he's dating, like, who was someone who was an indie musician and, like, makes himself relatable to people. So that they think that, oh, he's just like us, going to be just like him one day when we have a great idea and make money off it.
3: <laughs> I think it's it's also a lot more, e- it's a lot easier to accept information from these types of audiences than it is from, like, academics. Yeah. I feel that people are less likely to accept the words of, people who have qualifications when compared to people who can actually speak the more common language like Joe Rogan. I mean, you kind of see that the example I think of the most is like Dr. Anthony Fauci in the US. (laughs) He's like got all these different qualifications and he just has to like explain to these senators why they're wrong over and over again in these court hearings. Uh,
1: But they're willfully wrong. They're wrong on purpose
3: for political reasons. Mm. And there's there's also just like anti-Fauci movements. People just like dislike him just because just because of a lot of the experience and that, that kind of highlights that in general there's just a lot of disdain towards I suppose intellectualism and the kind of academic culture.
1: Yeah, yeah. There is the populist distrust of expertise. Definitely.
4: I think with people like Elon Musk, it's like they interpret him and even Trump as successful business people. And therefore that makes them like good with money versus like politicians. Where in reality, like, I don't think there's a direct correlation between running a business and managing like a country's economy or being a good leader.
1: No, no, there's not. Especially when you have a string of bankruptcies behind you.
4: And your parents gave you money. Yeah. Yeah.
5: I think that plays into that American idea, though, in that they tend to think politics as being a lot more economic. So then, therefore, someone who's good at business makes a lot of money for themselves and make a lot of money for the country. That's all there is to running a country. Like they don't think about all the other aspects of it because they'll take care of that themselves. Mm
1: -hmm. Yes. Well, you don't have to persuade me on this. You know that that was my point about democratic politics is not it's not like a market. Politics is more complicated than market forces. Persuasion and big words. <laughs> hmm. So we... <laughs> this is the last question. I haven't really heard much. Well, you have been speaking up, Willow, but... What did you think of um, an illustration of this was Pauline Hanson, when she was quizzed about guns, she kept saying, you should research it, look it up, uh, about the connection between gun regulation and um, people dying. This idea that anybody can Google and find and research any sort of conspiracy you want uh, versus listening to the experts.
3: What do you think that's done to that? I think just a quick point on that. I, I think it's interesting the way the burden of pr- proof is placed where it's a, in recent times, it's a lot, it's a lot more common for people to say, my source is just trust me, bro. And like, you should go find the information yourself. It's very much placing the burden of proof on your opponent rather than actually like providing something and then waiting for people to debunk it in like the traditional sense of argument.
2: <laughs> well,
1: that, that's, I'm, Michael, I'm following up your point about Fauci and expertise.
2: Mm.
1: I was curious if, if, yeah. if you're interested in question four, just that illustration of, of Pauline Hansen saying, just research it.
5: I do really hate the the common trend now of people we're supposed to look for, look to to give us information to tell us to look it up ourselves. And it's like, you're supposed to be our experts. You're supposed to give us the information. And instead they're going, oh, well, like, I'm just going to say what I want to say and there'll be something online to back me up and you should go find it. Yeah.
1: You can imagine. I mean, I'm I'm pretty unreliable Person on this, school, obviously, I'm very biased towards expertise. <laughs> now, the, educa- the more educated you become, you realize how limited your understanding is. The less education you have, the more you think you know it all.
4: You have to be quite self-aware, though. I think to be, um, like, to even understand your own limits or this. Like I was talking to my friend who studies paramedicine yesterday, and um, we we'll I was talking about like lenses that you look through to view the world differently, mm-hmm. and she was like, "What?" And I was like, "I was like, oh, because she's her boyfriend's um, like European and stuff," and I was saying like, you know, people look at you through a Western lens because people say they don't look like a couple because she's very like blonde hair, you know, blue eyes, Australian, and he's very like looks very wog.
1: Like I said, European My wife is from Europe, but Northern Europe.
4: Which well, Yeah. Well, like basically, they look very different, and people have some people have said to her they don't look like a couple. And I said, you know, they're looking at you through like a Western lens. They've normalised what they think a relationship is. Like she'd never heard that before, even though you know she's also at university, she's also yeah, you know, gonna have a career and all that type of stuff. Like to be aware of your own limitations takes actual effort. Mm.
3: Yeah, to follow up on that point, I think self-awareness is like, kind of directly correlated with someone's willingness to talk out on things. It comes back to the classic Dunning-Kruger effect where like, people who have very little self-awareness think that they're extremely self-aware. And they'll think I'm an expert on this. That's uncontested. And they'll kind of assert that. Whereas people who are more self-aware tend to also express more caution, more self-doubt. Yeah.
5: It's think that's to be questioned, isn't it?
2: Hmm.
5: Um, and I also think when we're talking about the media and the like, politics and stuff, that phrase, you're not immune to propaganda, I think that everybody has forgotten because there is so much propaganda. And people just... I think that people just forget that you... that they're susceptible to being manipulated by the media. I mean, and the more you learn, the more you realise that you have been. And that like my... even I always like to think that I'm try and look up decent sources and things. I look back and a lot of my past opinions have been just informed by what I've seen and what I've heard and not really any critical thinking and Mm. I at least know that whereas people would have no idea that they are being manipulated all the time.
3: Mm. I think it's also fair to acknowledge our biases here because I mean we're all from we're all here at university surrounded by other academic people so I feel as though it's also very likely that we would come to these conclusions, whereas that's not necessarily the case in like a more general community forum. Yeah. Yes.
5: Absolutely.
3: And that's also yeah, a case with a lot of research where university students are like the most sampled group on earth, and so a lot of a lot of findings will tend to be have limits with generalisation.
2: So you kind
3: of think like how does students. Hmm. You kind of think, like, how's the self-awareness and kind of critical thinking that we have affecting the findings? Mm. Yeah, that's
1: well-known criticism of psychology experiments. But it, doesn't, it doesn't really apply to a whole lot of other disciplines, though. Economics doesn't rely on university students. Not even sociology, not even sociology, really. That
3: that really is a uh, criticism targeted at psychology. Yeah, that 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 that's kind of me speaking as a psych student. Uh, but also, I feel as though there there's, there's there are tangential relationships between a lot of psychology research and politics, because I mean, I was going to bring this up in like sort of ignorance and apathy. A lot of psychology views politics as very like. Descriptive, more than something to actually like think about and engage with, It's kind of something like you can study if someone's a Republican or a Democrat. You can kind of look at factors that contribute to that. That's kind. Of, that's kind of the conversations I have when I talk about like politics as my other major.
1: Yeah, I once met a colleague at a university in Stockholm. He's a big advocate of um, political science. Uh, that if you're, if you're not analyzing what's going on and making predictions, then you're just an historian describing the past. And most, uh, most political scientists in Australia have very little training in statistics and, and quantitative analysis and aren't, aren't interested in making predictions. And there, it, it made me yeah actually there's a lot of running through of history recent political history in in a lot of political science but the alternative to predictions based on quantitative numbers the alternative is interpretation and explanation of why and um, even if you, don't, you can't really predict what's going to happen, at least you understand why, we're, why we are where we are. And this gives you reasons for, for what to do. What do we do now? And that's, I think that, that's the central question of politics. What, what is to be done? One of Lenin's pamphlets, but <laughs> it is the central question. What do we do now? What policy do we need? um the predictions are they're always they're always wrong anyway. It's quantitative um analysis the alternative is not just description the alternative is um thinking about uh why things have come so um another example um What's his name? Um, the the, uh, the uh, Darwin studying studying uh, evolution. It, it was not a quantitative study. He wasn't making predictions about the science of evolution. He was simply observing all this diversity of human of life in the world and speculating about the cause. And this has been enormously influential because he, he looked at causality without making, he wasn't interested in predictions, he was interested in interpreting what was in front of him. Not to describe that, well, he did do a lot of description, but he was looking for the
3: cause. Why is it so? Um, I think that kind of thematic analysis is is very important, and I feel that's something that's very often missed where people want to look at a phenomena and describe it without actually looking at like why it occurs. Yeah. Yeah. Well,
0: sure.
1: There's, there's a lot of pretty mediocre, mediocre, uh, what is it? Mediocre? Mediocrity. (laughs) Not very good social science. That's, that's too descriptive.
0: Without trying to interpret causes
3: speculate as to why. I think causality is also kind of impossible to get to the root of in politics. You can't just say like, this is a universal thing that causes someone's political alignment because there's just, I feel as though there's too many factors to actually like look at that in an isolated environment and be able to say like this factor definitively causes this. Yeah,
1: that's, that's, not, that's not the only way of understanding causality. correlations, multiple factors, which causes what, what causes which. You could also interpret, um, you could come up, speculate about, you know, patriarchy or colonialism as a general cause without needing to quantify it. Evolution, again, you could talk about um, competition the survival of the fittest gene, Um, that's what people came up with later. But Darwin's speculations weren't precise and quantified, but it inspired a lot of later research, a little observation of biology. Um, So that, that sort of activity, Darwin's approach, is what's relevant in politics, rather than the more economics or psychology, with this closely, you know, the relationship between inflation and, and unemployment, say, or interest rates, These are very, uh, you know, lots of numbers, and you can, look at the weight of causality pretty closely if you want to. But that's quite different to thinking about class or race or sex or gender. So on.
6: We all have to go. Okay. Hey, so do I. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Mark. Yeah,
3: I'll also head off. Thanks, Thanks a lot, Andrew. Uh-huh. I think this is, this is definitely, like, one of the, the best, like, lectures yet because I feel as though it gives a lot more, like, context for me as to, like, I think you're right with saying like a whole, this could be a whole unit in of itself. And like, this is kind of what you come to the unit expecting. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Hmm. And instead you have to put up with all this philosophical history and uh, all these
3: debates and arguments, varieties of theories of democracy. I I think it's I think it's definitely interesting.
1: It's what contemporary political science is, is debating. Next mm. We talk about participation, uh eh, deliberation and agonism. That's that's what everyone's thinking about.
3: Yeah. Well thank you very much. Okay. Yeah. I'll catch two, you next. Oh, not next week. Next week's the break. The right, two weeks time. Yeah. Um. Is there any like notice if it's going to be back in person? Uh, have,
1: all I've heard, all any of us have heard, is that it's it was um
3: postponed until after the break. Yeah, I remember hearing that after the last lockdown, but I'm 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 not really sure if like this like current like slash just past one has done anything so the, the relaxing
1: of regional victoria has led to no relaxing in warm ponds hmm whether warm ponds opened after the break but burwood doesn't i don't know yeah apparently there's five new unexplained cases today yeah it's it's, it's hard to keep up <laughs> I know, know. it's it's a bit tedious, it's sort of over it. Meanwhile, New South Wales is just getting worse and worse
0: and worse.
3: Mm. Anyway. Well, I'll see you after the break then. Okay. Yeah. Bye. See you then. Bye.